1: Radio waves. she sees
0: radio waves. she sees radio waves. Welcome to the Astrophys Podcasts. First of all, we would like to acknowledge Australia's first astronomers, the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, the traditional owners and custodians of the land we are on. This episode is produced on Yorta Yorta, Pangarang and Ka'urna country. My name is Brendan O'Brien and today is Friday the 1st of April 2022. We always include a community service announcement asking you to wash your hands regularly, wear a mask if you can't socially distance effectively and isolate as much as possible and as soon as you can to protect yourself and your community get that COVID 19 vaccination as we work our way through this global crisis. We also ask you to influence your local politicians with the message that we need to change our energy policies to move to renewable energy to mitigate climate change. Each month we bring you two fabulous episodes. On the first of each month you'll get to hear Dr. Ian Astroblog Musgrave bring you his monthly sky guide. An astro treat for naked eye observers, telescopers, and astrophotographers, and he always includes a tangent of astronomical wonder. In the middle of each month, we'll give you an interview with a noted astrophysicist, astronomer, astrophotographer, space scientist, or particle physicist. So let's zoom over to Adelaide now to get your sky guide from Ian. Hello, Ian.
1: Hello, Brendan. How are you going?
0: Very well, thanks, mate. It's been a bit of a pleasure to see the exit of summer and we've just had the equinox and we're moving into autumn and it's just beautiful.
1: It's 31 degrees today, so uh, it's uh, still thinking, oh, it's still summer.
0: (laughs) Indeed. So, okay then, Ian, can you tell us what's up in the sky for the month of april
1: okay so what's up in the sky for the month of april lots and lots of things but of course sadly the vast majority of them are still in the morning sky yes i'm sorry you'll have to get up early in the morning to see these the lights just like you have to do we had five bright planets in the morning sky in the end of march and i hope you got to see the conjunctions of mars saturn Venus and the crescent moon. By the time this goes out, these will be over, unfortunately. But April brings us some more interesting conjunctions. Now, as always, I'm going to start with the moons. So April the 1st is the new moon. Then April the 9th is the first quarter moon, which is particularly lovely for looking at it through the telescope. April the 17th is the full moon. Then April 23rd is the last quarter. Apogee, when the moon is furthest from the the Earth, is April 8th, and perigee is, when the moon is closest, is on April the 20th. So if you're interested in recording an apogee first quarter moon, then the April the 9th is not too bad. It's only uh, um, a few, uh, 24 hours past apogee. It'll be a nice mini First quarter moon, which you can use to contrast with the uh, perigee first quarter moon later on in the year, which I'll talk about uh, in that one of our later broadcasts. Because, uh, as I've said multiple times, uh, we get excited by apogee and perigee full moons because they're the smallest and biggest full moons, and they're really, really obvious. But apogee and perigee occurs for new moons, first quarter moons, and last quarter moons. But like uh, an aperture, a perigee, a new moon, you're not going to see anything unless it's directly in front of the sun. Uh, The last quarter uh, is not particularly exciting because it occurs uh, in the early hours of the morning, but both the full moon uh, and the first quarter moons are easily visible. And with the first quarter moon, because you've got all the, the terminator with all the craters visible, it can be a little bit more interesting in that you get to see more detail, whereas the full moon is completely washed out. Let's move on to the planets now. Now, the evening sky actually has a planet return to it, so Mercury returns to the evening sky later in the month. Unfortunately, it's going to be barely visible. It never gets very high uh, above the horizon it's deep in the twilight, so it's going to be really, really, really difficult to see unless you've got a really flat horizon. Uh, like the ocean uh, or a, the desert, and you may need binoculars to see it in the twilight. Anyway, so as I said before, all the action's happening in the morning sky. So let's start off with Venus because it's the most obvious at the moment. So if you go out and look to, to the east any time from about 5:30 to 6, you'll be able to see Venus really, really brilliantly. And even when it gets closer and closer to sunrise, Venus is still uh, readily apparent. So, Venus starts a month in a line with Saturn and Mars. So, we've been watching it form uh, first a triangle uh, with uh, Saturn and Mars uh, coming very close to Saturn, but begins April as a lineup with Saturn and Mars. Find also Jupiter is uh, low to the horizon. So uh, the trio is easily seen uh, an hour before sunrise. Jupiter might be a bit harder to to see. You may have to wait a little closer to sunrise to see Jupiter easily. After this, Venus is starting to sink towards the horizon. And it's still going to be visible easily for most of the month, but it's it's, it's beginning to lower, so it's no longer as high and as bright as it used to be. Well, the most interesting thing that's happening this month is uh, Jupiter having a close approach to Neptune, followed by a close approach to Jupiter. So on the 28th, Venus is a mere 14 arc seconds from Neptune. Now, this is going to be a telescope-only event because Neptune, of course, is magnitude 8, which means it's well below the eye threshold. And theoretically, you could possibly see this with the Oculus, but the brightness of Venus will completely wipe out Neptune. But in a telescope, they're so close that they'll be easily easily, easily visible in medium to moderate power eyepieces. And you should be able to see the gibbous face of Venus and the tiny, tiny disk of Neptune. Uh, Again, because Venus will be so bright, it may be hard to... See any colour in Neptune, you might be lucky enough to see a faint bluish sheen, but the pair will be visible together quite nicely in medium powered telescope eyepieces. So, this is best seen from the east coast and central Australia. Unfortunately, from Western Australia, the pair don't rise until well after closest approach, but even so, while it, by the time they're high enough to see a telescope reasonably close together about one to two degrees away for those of us in the east coast we are looking around about five o'clock in the morning and those of us in the central we're looking about 4 35 to see this uh, rather nice uh, conjunction
0: okay so
1: just get up early Yep, get up early now Venus continues to head towards the horizon as Jupiter continues to rise towards Venus and so by the 30th Venus and Jupiter are just one degree apart that's one thing to the apart. okay let's move on to Mars Mars is in opposition this year but it's still relatively dim. about as bright as Saturn but if you're looking at the trio in the morning, Venus, Mars and Saturn, Mars is above Saturn and is reddish. Saturn is yellowish and Venus, of course, is bright white. So you've got this interesting colour contrast between the three. Now, very early in the month, you'll see Mars come close to Saturn and the pair are closest on the fifth and sixth. They're only half a figure apart and they'll also fit are easily into a medium-power telescope eyepiece. You won't see too much detail in a telescope eyepiece. And they'll be relatively high in the skies. As the the month wears on, uh, Mars and Saturn is left behind. Saturn is moving up and Mars is moving down. But Mars remains fairly high for the rest of the month. Uh, Jupiter has started the month off relatively low to the horizon uh, for about an hour before sunrise where the sky is reasonably dark. Jupiter continues to rise and from about mid month on it's uh, high enough in the sky to appreciate reasonably well. But it's not really a telescope object, although by the end of, of March, beginning of April, it's worthwhile viewing venus and, and jupiter together in a telescope just because it's, it's such an interesting encounter but the other thing that's happening is on the 13th jupiter is 0.1 degree from neptune again the pair easily fit field of, a, of medium to moderate size telescope by pieces but unfortunately at this stage jupiter is still fairly low to the horizon so you're looking at around about 10 degrees at astronomical twilight when the sky is fully dark so this might be very uh, hard to to see but i know where i put my telescope there's a great big shed in the way and so i won't be able to see this but if you've got a a clear and level eastern horizon and your telescope can uh, get down fairly well this will be a very interesting encounter hopefully it gets a bit higher at uh, laudable twilight but remember Neptune is only magnitude 8 and may be washed out by the encroaching uh, twilight and I've already talked about uh, Jupiter and Venus being one degree away uh, on the 30th with a spectacular close approach first of May the action is still all in the morning a close approaches of the moon to these planets so on the 25th the crescent moon is close to Saturn on the 26th the crescent moon is close to Mars and on the 27th the thin crescent moon is above the pair of Jupiter and Venus and then on the 28th the thin crescent moon is below Jupiter and Venus so that would be quite interesting to see So, although the evening sky is uh, practically devoid of uh, bright planets unless you really really want to try and find Mercury in the twilight glow, uh, the um, stars are still rather interesting. So uh, Orion, which was dominated our skies for the past month, is now setting in the west. But Orion's nemesis, Scorpius, the Scorpion, is rising in the east. It's an excellent time to observe the Emu. And the Emu is one of Australia's indigenous constellations. It's a dark constellation. That means it's made up entirely of dust lanes. So dark constellations are so unique to the Southern Hemisphere, probably because that's, we've got the best view of the centre of the galaxy. And I'll talk about that more in our next podcast. In South America, they have the constellations of the Tinamu, which is a relative work of the emu, and two llamas that make up the constellation that Indigenous Australians call the emu. So the emu consists of the coal sack, the dark dust cloud that nestles in the crook of the Southern Cross, and this forms the head of the emu. Then there's a dark dust lane that, uh, that starts near the stars of the pointers, Alpha, Venus, and Cori, and then it runs down to the curl of stars that forms the body of Scorpio. And this is the uh, fringe of feathers around the emu. So the, the dark lane is the neck of the emu as well. A uh, second dark uh, uh, dust lane uh, below the uh, uh, stars of the Scorpio forms the lower body and the legs. Now, of course, being made of dust, dust lane is almost impossible to see inside a city, although um, uh, in those of us in suburbs further away from the city may be able to, to see it faintly. And of course, in the country, you can see it almost immediately. It's, once you spot it, you will wonder why you never saw the EV before. Now, sadly, uh, you'll have to wait for quite some time at the moment, so it's best seen around 10 30 to 11 pm this month and it'll be uh, visible earlier in May, and then we'll discuss the whole centre of the galaxy thing later on. The other jewel in the sky is Omega Centauri. It's a magnificent globular cluster. Uh, it looks like a fuzzy star, and it'll be readily visible in the uh, light evening forming a triangle with the southern cross of the pointers. That's very well worthwhile having a look, and of course the best times to see that will be around uh, the time of the new moon, uh, early in April, and then uh, late in April, uh, around the last quarter moon, when the moon's gone from the early evening sky. Lots of things to hunt for. Lots and lots of things to hunt for, and it will be a brilliant time to hunt.
0: Very good, Ian. So I heard a rumour that you've got a very good tangent for us for this month.
1: I have indeed. I have indeed. Now, you may remember that in our past three tangents, I've been talking about naming of names. moons yep. as planets, whether you can uh, buy names, and how we know what the con- conceptual names around exoplanets. Now, there's a very rich tradition of using apparently common objects for size comparison. For example, as Australians, we'll use Olympic swimming pools, the Sydney Harbour Bridge, Uluru, and blue whales as comparisons for disparate objects. Now, sometimes these comparisons don't work, as in a recent case in the United States, where a road was reported to be blocked by a large boulder the size of a small boulder. I reflect on that. As Douglas Edelman says, space is big, mind-bogglingly big, and you may think it's a long way to the corner shop, but space is much, much, much bigger. Yep. And a lot of the things inside space, like stars, planets, dwarf planets, minor planets, asteroids, associated rubble, etc., can also be mind-bogglingly huge or embarrassingly small. And we often try to compare some of these things, with common objects to try and get a feel for them. And of course, sometimes like the large boulder the size of the small boulder, this doesn't quite work. Recently, there was a story about an asteroid that was picked up uh, before it hit our atmosphere, one of only five uh, asteroids that have been so picked up, and it exploded somewhere off the coast of Iceland. Now, 2022 EV5, remember my story about naming the names, a couple of uh, podcast facts, was described as half the size of a giraffe. Yep. Now, inquiring minds want to know uh, which half. Giraffes are around about six metres tall. So assuming we were uh, bisecting this poor camelopard lengthwise, rather than front to back, that's around about three metres. Now, most people are not really familiar with the giraffe. And so the mental gymnastics involved in trying to compare this uh, asteroid with half a giraffe is not particularly helpful. Also giraffes are sort of tall and gangly while most smallish asteroids are more like peanut shapes and there's some interesting galleries of uh, uh, radar scans of near-earth asteroids showing them to be mostly sort of long and thin ovals or weirdly shaped peanut-like objects. So if you search for radar images of asteroids in your favorite uh, internet uh, search engine, you'll find some of these really bizarre and interesting uh, things. But anyway, so if you want to think of, if you think of what looks like an asteroid, a giraffe is not the first thing that comes to mind. So we want animals that are more like ovals. So you know, something that's sort of overly shaped and around about three meters. So a good example would be the common dolphin It's around about three meters. So we could have been, easily said uh, an asteroid around about the size of a common dolphin, There a dolphins for the smaller dolphins that are bigger, but common dolphins are around about three metres. And it's a more fitting comparison for something slicing its way through the atmosphere, well, before it exploding messily. But the other thing we could use as a comparison is the extinct mega-wombat that you which is also approximately three metres long. Although, you know, you could easily bring a dolphin to mind, bring your dichrotolongle to the mine a little bit harder. So a marine mammal scale, I think, uh, would be very helpful when we're trying to understand a whole range of asteroids. So asteroid 2008 TC3, which was the very first asteroid to be tracked for Earth. Was four metres, a bit over a dolphin, or half an orca, and, uh, which is uh, around about eight metres long. So we've got another useful uh, unit of asteroid comparison. Uh, the asteroids 2014 AA, 2018 LA, and 2019 MO, which were all the other asteroids that were uh, tracked, but you know, discovered, identified, and tracked before they hit our atmosphere and their inevitable design, were all about a dolphin in size. I think this reflects more the limit of things we're able to see with our our tracking systems rather than asteroids being intrinsically about the size of dolphins. The small asteroid that exploded over in Russia in 2013 was about 20 metres, or two-thirds of a blue whale, or 2.5 or or 3.3 dolphins, or or, or, 3.3 half giraffes. The Tusanka impactor was probably a stony body between 50 and 80 meters, so somewhere between 2 to 2.5 blue whales. The KT impactor was about 10 kilometers. That's 333 blue whales, to Douglas Adams, and the blue whale falling to its doom over the plague of Or roughly three times the size of the Uluru. So, while these mammal comparisons are relatively helpful, I mean, we have a, a, a reasonably good idea of, of a blue whale. We can sometimes use uh, uh, buildings. So, for example, a recent asteroid was described as big as the Empire State Building, which is at 330 metres. This is 11 blue whales or 55 giraffes. The Eiffel Tower, 300 metres, is all so use That's um, 10 blue whales. So those are all big things. Of course, as we get bigger and bigger, gets uh, uh, slightly ridiculous. But within the sorts of things that come close to us and uh, people get uh, excited or worried about, uh, the blue whale standard, uh, uh, or the, rather the marine mammal standard, is, is pretty good. Then we have the small range of the range, largely ignored but important nonetheless. Uh, so a dust particle aside the size of a tea leaf, wreak havoc with satellites and we bore those peril and there's a number number of these things occasionally uh, smashing into solar power arrays and uh, taking them out but of course a a t-loop sized particle moving at orbital velocity would not do nice things to the international space station so there you have I would like to propose a marine uh, animal scale where we compare everything to so starting with small marine mammals moving up to uh, uh say seals to dolphins to orcas to blue whales that will cover a whole range of the uh, large lucky things that uh, come close to or land, uh, land uh, messily in our atmosphere While uh, we could even uh, include Penguins, if their rocks are small enough, but in terms of our ability to see them, uh, we're looking around about the size of a dolphin. Is that currently our our minimum trackable and detectable uh, marine mammal size? Amazing. But it it gives us a more natural scale than the rather mind-boggling half-giraffe.
0: That sounds very reasonable, Mr. David Attenborough. Okay, well, thank you very much. Ian Astroblog Musgrave. It's my pleasure, Brendan.
1: I had a fun time looking this up for this podcast.
0: Get outside and look up, everyone. Indeed. Good night, Ian. Good night, Brendan. All the best. Bye. And in two weeks, we have a wonderful interview for you when we speak with particle physicist Dr. Susie Shee, who is doing groundbreaking work with particle accelerators to develop compact instruments, which are changing the way we do nuclear medicine in clinical treatments worldwide. She's fantastic. And remember, Astrophys is free, ad-free and unsponsored. But we're always very happy to recommend that you go to Rami Mandal at spaceaustralia.com for the very latest and best space news. We'll see you in two weeks. Radio right waves.